my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. On the basis of live sightings, probably more people, anglers and non-anglers alike, are familiar with mullet than any other species of fish swimming in British waters. They're a common sight around harbours and in marinas where people not only see them, but as importantly recognise them. But few actually ever fish for them, most subscribing to the myth that they're uncatchable, or at best rarely caught, and only then by a few fortunate anglers after huge inputs of time and effort. In truth, the reality can be somewhat different. Difficult fish to catch? Maybe. That's because most dyed-in-the-wool sea anglers are unwilling to do what it takes to bring them into the reckoning as a real angling potential, something mullet specialist Leon Roskilly, who I'm about to link up with here, is hopefully going to put us right on. But before handing over to Leon, I should make the point that when we talk about mullet here, unless specified otherwise, we're referring to the thick-lipped grey variety. There are two other similar-looking less common species, both of which are readily distinguished from the thick-lipped grey, though not as easily from each other, by having a more normal-looking thin upper lip. A fourth species, the red mullet, while it shares the family name, is in no way related to the three grey varieties previously mentioned. The first issue I feel we need to tackle is mullet catchability. As I've already said, most sea anglers tend to write them off as a target species, saying they're either difficult or maybe even impossible to catch. A suggestion which for those who fish for mullet regularly like yourself will most definitely want to refute. On occasions and in places they are fairly impossible to catch. They have feeding periods and when they're not actually feeding you'll see a lot of mullets swimming around and you can chuck anything you like at them and they, they just ignore everything. And sometimes it's as though somebody flicks a switch and suddenly they come on to feed. And uh, I've never been able to figure out what it is that brings it about. Once they come on to feed, they're fairly catchable. I think one of the other problems that sea anglers have, of course, is that they use the wrong tackle. By and large, mullet are very suspicious. If something doesn't look right, they won't take it. Uh, very often I'm fishing, throwing a handful of free offerings and one with a hook in and they're sucking up all the free offerings and just leave that one piece of bread with the hook in completely alone. They know there's something not right about it, that it's not acting right in the flow, not bobbing around right. And we've tried all things uh, of painting the hook white so it's not a giveaway, but still they're very, very suspicious now, we do find that we, we do get bites by fishing very, very light. That's small hooks and light hook lengths, less noticeable to the fish, which is very different to what sea anglers use. They use great big hooks and fairly heavy line. And also you need balanced tackle. If you're going to use a very small hook for a fish as powerful as that, and a light line, you need a fairly forgiving rod that can absorb the shock of the fish running, diving down, without breaking the line or pulling the hook out. And uh, mullet have this undeserved reputation for having soft lips. If you've ever tried digging a barbed hook out of a thick-lipped mullet's lip, they're anything but soft. It's just that any fish as powerful as that with a hook as fine and as small as that it's going to pull unless you play it very carefully on, on very balanced tackle. Unfortunately, a pure rod and a 15-pound line and 
just doesn't do it and you will get the hook put out almost inevitably. So that's the uh, reputation they have. In fact, I've been fishing off of some pier in Chatham. Chaps have come up to me and said, what are you fishing for, mate? And, oh, I'm off the mullet. Oh, no, you can't catch those. But I've caught a fair few here. No, you can't catch them. Mullet, you can't catch them. <laughs> and they refuse, absolutely refuse to believe. They think I'm putting their leg that I'm fishing for mullet. But, uh, no, once you know the correct techniques, the correct presentation, use balanced tackle, etc., then they're as catchable as any other species when they're in the mood to be caught. So give us an insight now into what you would consider to be proper tackle and techniques to be in with a realistic shot at mullet success. Most of my mullet fishing is done float fishing, and for that I'll use a, uh, a standard 13-foot freshwater match rod, the kind of thing that you'd use for catching tench or bream, and uh, a six-pound main line. I prefer to use a centre pin reel for mullet because of the, the way they fight, you need to be able to react and give line quite quickly when necessary. And I find that uh, using a um, fixed ball reel that you just can't control the drag to the degree that you can with the centre pin, you need to be able to apply pressure when you want to and to release it instantaneously when that fish goes. Um, hook lengths, sometimes six pound all the way through, but I prefer to go down to a four pound hook length and use fluorocarbon line, which is supposedly invisible in water. Size eight hook, usually size eight or size 10, with a flake of bread just molded around the hook so that the hook's completely hidden, but the bread still remains fairly flocculent. And perhaps I'll touch on why a bit later. It's often said, and again, widely believed by sea anglers, that mullet are not interested in traditional anglers' baits. Another myth we should perhaps put to bed. But to set the scene on that one, it might first help to understand the mullet's feeding habits, then start to look at how these can be used to angling advantage. Mullet are specialist feeders. They don't compete with a lot of other fish for the food that they're after, which is very low in nutrition. Uh, and that food is principally algae, which you often see as a, a brown coating over the mud or on harbour walls. And they go along and graze that. And you can see the marks made by their lips. It's as though somebody's taken two fingers and drawn tram lines in the mud. And they suck that mud up. Huge gut longest of any fish and it takes a long time for that low nutrient mud and algae to pass through the gut so that all the goodness is taken out of it but when you can see them feeding you can see puffs of mud coming out from behind them and of course algae isn't something that you can put on the hook so we're onto a loser there fortunately they are very opportunistic feeders if there's a source of nutrient rich food available locally fairly consistently they will make use of that say in harbors where they clean the fish out etc you get the fish guts whatever comes out the sewage outlet pipes it's fascinating to stand at the end of a sewage outlet and see shoals of mullet feeding confidently on the discharge from the sewage pipe where there's meat processing factories, chicken factories, etc., they're quite well known for feeding on all the stuff that's discharged out of there. And uh, 
the mullet around marinas and in harbours, etc., are used to all kinds of stuff being thrown in the water, bread, chips, etc. And they're a lot more catchable in that kind of environment than anywhere else because they will take novel foods like bread and fish flesh on the hook quite readily. Mullet are sometimes caught on sea baits, on uh, worms, meant for other species, on on large chunks of fish, traditional sea baits, but not very often. They're also fry feeders. When there's a lot of fry in the margins, you can see them chasing the fish fry, almost like bass. That's when they become targetable by fly fishermen. Um, there's quite a few people use different flies for mullets. Some are bread imitations, some are fry imitations, and uh, I do a lot of fly fishing for trout. Uh, it's it's not something that I'm particularly keen to get into with mullet. They're frustrating enough to catch anyway, <laughs> without the uh, added complications of trying to fish for them with flies. The other bait is maggots, but again, only when maggots are available to them locally. You tend to get that when you've had a series of growing tides as they grow to the springs, putting seaweed onto the beach, and then it's left there until the next set of high tides. That gets fly-blown, and a lot of maggot gets in. And when the next set of spring tides come along and start pulling that rotting seaweed off with all the maggots, the maggots drop down in the water, and both mullet and bass feeding quite enthusiastically on those maggots coming down through the water. So under those circumstances, maggots are quite a good bait. In fact, a friend of mine experimented off of some pier with maggots. Uh, he filled a, a tin up with maggots with a hole in the bottom and, and put that out over the water. So the maggots were dropping through one by one. Unfortunately, the uh, mullet weren't turned on to maggots at the time, but the pouting were, <laughs> and he had a stream of pouting downtide of this uh, tin just, just lying there in the current, getting a bite of chuck through from the pouting. Picking up on what you said about mullet only occasionally taking fish baits, my best thick clip of four and a quarter pounds was taken while dinghy fishing for conger, using a full side of mackerel around a shallow reckonox which bay fishing with Dave Lewis. When he first hit the surface and went powering off, we were both certain that it was a bass. Only when the landing net went down on the deck did we realise just exactly what it was. So much then for finicky feeding and coarse fishing tackle. <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt whether he was trying to eat the whole side. He probably was grazing on the side and sort of encountered the hook. But then again, I've... One of the techniques I use for fishing for them is to use a cage feeder full of bread with a hook length coming off of that and drop it down into the water. That attracts the mullet up to the uh, feeder and sometimes, rarely, they take the, the hook. What they often do is just bash the cage feeder around and you can see the rod tip bending and then drop a, uh, a piece of float fish bread in next to the cage feeder and very often you get a bite as the bread drifts away but one time I had that and the rod tip started bouncing like crazy I pulled I felt the weight of a good mullet I fought it for a little while brought it up to the top and then I saw this mullet open its mouth and it had taken the whole of the cage feeder into its mouth and decided to let go once its head came to the surface so there's this huge gaping mouth and the cage feeder come out of it and again, we use very fine small wire hooks 
so that they can't detect the hook. But the, there's this fish, big fish, decided to just take the whole cage feeder. It's one of the things with mullet, uh, t- trying to get your head around what they're up to is uh, part of the fun of the game, I think. As you've already said, the key to consistently catching mullet is preconditioning. So let's explore that particular topic next. Away from the harbours and the marinas, you'll often see shoals of mullet feeding on algae. And these are wild fish that just feed on algae all of the time. Now, you can sometimes educate those to take bread baits. And it means baiting up over at least three days of tides. So you need to be fairly dedicated to doing that. And it very much depends on the conditions, how you go about that. Well, one way is to leave a trail of soaked bread up along the tide line. As the tide comes up, more and more of this bread drifts away into the tide. If there's a handy pontoon or a quayside or something, then you can drop in a net bag full of bread over the side. And the mullet will... Because they feed on flocculent material, and you see them sometimes, they'll, they'll suck in some weed and spit it out instantly. What they're after is the uh, microorganisms within that weed, not the weed itself. And bread is a flocculent material. I believe that they're experimenting, they see a piece of flocculent material, they suck it in uh, and spit it out, and then think, hey, that tastes pretty good. Then they go back to it and eat it, and... Very soon, the rest of the shoal is catching on to this. They see one fish feeding, the other fish not feeding on it all. And if you've been feeding fairly regularly, at least three days, perhaps more, they begin to know that in that place they'll find this stuff and start to come there looking for it, expecting it to be there. Once you've got them taking bread, then, of course, you can use the uh, bread as a hook bait. Having said that, one has to be fairly dedicated in, in, in doing all that pre-baiting and pre-feeding. And if there's easier marks nearby where they're quite used to it, then uh, there's not the necessity for doing that. Is bread then the bait of first choice throughout mullet circles, or are there other viable options? Well, in some locations where people clean fish, etc., then uh, a piece of mackerel flesh with the skin removed they don't tend to take it with the skin still attached. Again, it may have something to do with this flocculent presentation of the fish bait. But principally, bread is the bait of choice. It's easy. They they accept it readily. In fact, not just mullet. Quite surprisingly, we sometimes have a little species competition to see how many species we can actually get. Crabs will take bread, surprisingly. Um, and swimming crabs will take bread mid-water. Gobies do, bass certainly do. They're they're a nuisance when you're fishing bread for mullet sometimes. Yeah, it's fairly interesting, the different range of species. Mackerel, uh, sea trout, I know, have been caught on bread. And uh, where there's a run of coarse fish, you can sometimes be catching mullet and then suddenly find a roach on the end of your line, or a dace. Very often that, that happens in places like Christchurch Harbour, but also in an estuary, under the right tide conditions, it's surprising how far down estuary the coarse fish can come when there's a lot of fresh water coming down the estuary. Something I saw over in the Isle of Man once was anglers tying fish heads to the line to act as a swim feeder and a weight. Then a few inches away on a small hook, they'd hook up a tiny piece of flesh, which looked as though it had just broken away in the tide. 
a very effective approach at times which I haven't seen used anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, different places. There are other baits you can use. I, I would always go with bread as the first choice unless there was local conditions which made another bait better. The only exception to that, of course, is thin lip mullets, which can be taken on, on bread, but the best way of fishing for those is, is to use harbour rag about three or four inches below a MEPS-type spinner. So you take off the treble, tie a bit of nylon on with a size 8 hook, attach that to some uh, ragworm or harbour rag is best, and you can spin for them. Interestingly, they won't normally take the rag if you float fish in it, nor will they take the spinner by itself. They'll follow the spinner, but they won't go for it. It, it has to be that combination of a worm toad behind a spinner. That's just something about it that makes them take. And again, with thin lip mullet, they tend to be in quite large shoals. And so if you come across them feeding, you can take easily 20 or 30 in one go. Now I fish quite a bit over the years with the shore lads around Guernsey. Will they approach their mullet fishing very differently to how most mainland anglers would do it? They tend not to go in for long term ground baiting, preferring just to do it on the day while fishing for other stuff with the mullet rods set up ready in case any put in ashore. Normally they use boiled sand eels mashed up with bread and softened with fish oil, which they spoon in at intervals from the rocks leaving the tide to do the rest. Another technique I've also seen them use is a three-hook paternoster rig, baited with pieces of crust and cast from the open beach at Havilet near St Peterport. No feed, just crust on the bottom. Uh-huh, yeah. Locally there'll be various traditions of baits and methods that will for that location. If there are people fishing for mullet, it's worth finding out how the mullet are feeding. Having said that, most mullet specialist anglers are, are, are very cagey about giving information about how and where they fish. Because something about mullet is that they, they're very slow growing. It takes them 10 years in UK waters. It's about 10 years to reach breeding size, which is around three pounds. And a six or seven pound mullet is 15 years or more old. They also are very sight faithful. The same mullet will come back to the same places year after year. And if too many people take mullet from a location, the mullet population at that place, certainly of the bigger fish, will decline quite rapidly. And so people who fish catch and release for mullet that are looking for specimen fish will usually be quite secretive about the marks of where they're actually catching fish. Now I know that when you personally take on a challenge, for as long as that lasts, you like to do it to the max, and that has also applied to your mullet fishing. As you say, when I become interested in the species, I like to learn a lot about its life, how it feeds, its seasonality, etc. And for most species, there's a lot of information available. Freshwater fish, certainly, there's lots of books being published by anglers on, on the different species. And for sea fish, if we're looking at cod or even bass, CFAS have done lots of tagging studies, etc. They're of commercial interest, but mullet are a fish that very few people specialise in fishing for. And it's of no real commercial interest, so there's not been an investment in finding out about mullet. I know Alwyn Wheeler did a lot of work on it, some of which is quite interesting. And certainly around the local area, what do the mullet do? Where do they feed? What time of year? What time of the tide do they feed? 
one of the fascinating things is you have to find these things out for yourself. And having got the bug of fishing for mullet, had a few good fish explored their really powerful fighting capabilities, which is one of the main attractions to them. They're the hardest fighting fish, pound for pound, of any fish that I've come across. And trying to get that amount of knowledge in a short space of time to be effective was proving quite difficult so the obvious route was to try and make contact with other people who might be fishing for mullet in the area so I formed the Medway Mullet Group and the idea was that we'd have meetings once a month in the pub somewhere talk about our exploits with mullet share information by email of what was catching and uh, arrange fishings where you know we could get a group of us fishing together. Something I'd noticed with the Lure England Society when I was involved in uh, lure fishing was that there'd be one or two anglers uh, amongst 20 or so who would get in all the takes on their lures and watching those carefully was quite an education to see what they were doing that was subtly different to everybody else. And with mullet, again, things like just not putting your rod out over the water they're quite tolerant, I found, fishing off the pier of people making lots of noise on the pier riding past. They'd be swimming around, but the moment a rod went out over the water and the shadow of the rod across the water, they were gone. And it was anglers who had cottoned onto this that kept their rod parallel to the pier rather than out of the water who were getting most of the fish. Early season mullet was the interesting one. We'd all get excited come March or so and the mullet started appearing and we'd start seeing the lip marks and again having a, a group of people talking about it and communicating about it word quickly spread that yeah there were lip marks here or lip marks there and mullet had been seen here or there and it was time to get the mullet gear out again we found that mullet generally start feeding when the water temperature is 10 degrees so it came a case of buying a thermometer that we could measure the water temperature as often as we could. And fortunately, I worked quite close to the estuary. I could pop down there during my lunch hour and take readings. And then you notice how the uh, temperature of the estuary water would change with the tides and the weather conditions as well. If there was sunlight on the mud during the sunny part of the day, it was low tide there. The mud would soak up a lot of the heat of the sun, and when the tide came in over it, that tide would get warmed coming through. And the reverse happened if there was a night frost. If there was a low tide at night and there was, it was very cold and there was a frost and the mud got really cold, the water coming in cooled as well. And we were able to associate this warming and cooling with the patterns of their feeding, which again was only obvious when there were quite a few of us actually fishing and reporting back what was happening. One of the things I found fascinating in the early period was the way that the fish all over the estuary turned on to feed at the same time. So we'd have a week or so where nobody had any bites, and then people all around the estuary at Rochester, at Chatham, at Ginningham, started to experience mullet actually taking their baits on the same day. And then they'd stop taking for a few days and then start again. An estuary like the Medway is a big water to try and explore all of it and to put the picture together, just one person, that would be the work of years. But when there's 20 or so of you actually doing it together, the the picture develops a lot more rapidly. And uh, yeah, again, one of the exciting 
parts of mullet fishing was the social side of fishing with like-minded people, swapping ideas, thinking up things and, and trying them out together and learning from that. So the message then to take away here is gathering and sharing scientific data, which when taken in isolation may tell you nothing, but collectively can provide crucial shortcuts. So what other sorts of data did you accumulate, interpret and ultimately use to benefit? Water temperatures, I think, was the main one that we were using scientifically. By charting that, keeping a record daily, keeping a record of when mullet were first spotted, when they first started to take baits, when the first mullet were caught, the size of the mullet, and analysing all of that. One of the things that came out of it was that we found that the larger mullet were being caught early and late in the season, and we put that down to the fact that being a larger body weight, they were more tolerant of lower temperatures. So, say October or so, the mullet started to feel the cold and move off stop feeding it was the larger fish that remained feeding so where those large fish were there all year round feeding they were competing with a hundred fish so your odds of actually hooking that fish were quite low but when all the smaller fish should stop feeding and they were the only ones feeding then the uh, chances of actually hooking a big fish were greatly increased at the end of the season yeah, it's uh, recording all the information, putting it on Excel spreadsheets, uh, producing graphs and stuff that you weren't actually looking for leapt out of you once you put it into a graph and analysed it. Temperature was interesting that uh, although every season was quite variable, each year was quite variable, there were specific times around the high tides when that seasonal fluctuation would come back into line again. And that was with the high tides, which again we assume was because a lot of water from the sea was coming up the estuary and evening everything out again. So whether it had been a cold spring, a wet spring, a, a sunny spring or whatever, the uh, volume of water coming into the estuary sort of wiped the slate clean and took us back to the baseline where the temperatures should be. And with the beauty of hindsight, do you think the group could have done more either with the data they had or by picking up additional data they perhaps missed such as salinity, water clarity or even dissolved oxygen levels? Yeah, uh, I think we were only scratching the surface. Unfortunately, my own involvement in mullet fishing and in the Medway mullet group lessened as I got more involved in the angling politics side of things and had less and less time to actually go fishing for mullet or to keep up with running the Medway mullet group. I was involved with the Sea Anglers Conservation Network and that was increasingly taking my time. So uh, it's one of the things that had to fall by the wayside, unfortunately. Now I said in my opening remarks that when we talk about mullet fishing, it's taken as read that we're talking about the thick-lipped grey. That said, we shouldn't discount the possibility of catching other species, which with the right tactics and in the right locations can at times almost be caught to order. Picking up on something you mentioned earlier, back in the 1980s I used to holiday down at Christchurch in Dorset, where we put my boat in at low tide and motor down the Avon to where it met the Stour, in a marshy area just above Muddyford Harbour. There we'd fish using very light spinners baited with ragworm and would usually take anywhere between 20 and maybe even 50 thin lip grey mullets as a sitting. It was fantastic fun. Yeah, I've not had any experience myself with the golden greys. Most of my mullet fishing has been done 
around the Medway estuary or the Kent coast and the golden greys you're more likely to find down on the south coast and out towards the west although i've had reports of some being caught in the outer estuary very difficult sometimes to tell a golden grey one of the marks is the gold mark by the gill plate i've noticed this too a lot in thin lips which like the golden greys have lips of almost equal width which can make positive id very difficult yeah, yeah. There's various measurements that can be taken, the ratio of where the fins are and uh, the way the gill covers. Uh, if, if The experts can tell them apart, but uh, I say I, f- I fish mainly for thick lips myself, so identification's never been too much of a problem for me. Thin lips, again, I've, I've not fished for that often. I've fished Christchurch Harbour when I've been down with the National Mullet Club on fishings down that way and taking them on the spinner. They will travel a lot further into fresh water than the thick lips, thin lips, and, and they are usually in pretty big shoals. If if you spot a shoal of 20, 30 mullet, they're most likely thin lips with perhaps the odd thick lip mixed in with them. And especially if you find them way upstream, they're almost certainly thin lips. In fact, on the Medway at Allenton, on the tidal stretch there, I've seen big shoals of thin lip mullet and uh, got quite excited come back two days later and there's not a sign of them there they tend to come and go one strange phenomenon is that while most uk sea anglers see mullet as uncatchable when we go on holiday to say the med we're often happy to sit there for hours with our telescopic rods trying to do just that so if you think we can catch them there why not here when we get back if you head down to the Mediterranean, uh, a different species of mullet down there, which are a lot more obliging for a start, and the locals will be fishing for them quite a lot. And so it's quite natural for anglers when they're in a strange place to ride on the back of local knowledge and what the locals are doing, and uh, they will catch those mullet fairly easily uh, using the techniques. But if you take those techniques back, to the UK and the UK conditions, uh, they don't work too well at all. Most of the mullet I catch on holiday look to be thick lips, but I suppose the further south you fish, the greater the likelihood of other species also entering the frame. The most likely of these is reputedly the flathead grey mullet, which like the thin lip and golden grey species recorded from UK waters also has a thin upper lip. This is a fish of worldwide distribution, regularly occurring off the French and Spanish coast in the Biscay area, which isn't that far away from us. What then might we expect in the future, both from the species we already have, and from new ones migrating further north as sea temperatures continue to rise? Yeah, I think there are a lot of studies that show that fish populations are moving towards the poles fairly quickly, and it is quite likely that we'll get Mediterranean striped mullet here. I know a striped bass was taken recently off of Dover. Where that came from, I've no idea at all whether it had made it across the Atlantic or not. But more and more, I think we're seeing unusual species and warm water species. When I started sea fishing, triggerfish were quite a novelty or almost unheard of. Now triggerfish are taken quite consistently along the south coast there. We're also finding in the River Medway different kinds of fish, anchovies, there's been uh, taken in commercial quantities from the Thames estuary, 
red mullet also, uh, which aren't a mullet at all, of course. They've turned up in quite large quantities in the Thames estuary. So I expect we will see the odd one or two mullet coming up from southern Europe. They do seem to be extending their range somewhat. I've also had the odd speckled bass float fishing bred for mullet further south into mainland Europe. Uh-huh. Well, speckled bass have been recorded off the Essex coast. If you speak to Bob Cox, he has more knowledge of the catches of spotted bass there. They're around. And as a final comment, you being a mullet enthusiast, how would you sell mullet fishing to a sceptical British sea angling community? There are different types of sea anglers. There are those that are just interested in fishing for what's there so that they have a feed. Mullet, I don't think, are good eating. Some people do like them if they're cooked properly. I'm not sure that they're safe eating because, as I say, they live for a long time. They uh, pick up a lot of nasty things from the way they eat by sucking in the mud that's got all kinds of PCBs and pesticides, heavy metals, and uh, take a long time to pass any of that through the body so that accumulates. So personally, even if they were good eating, I wouldn't eat them because of the risk. So that's putting off those type of anglers who are just out looking for... uh, a day out and some fish to take home for the pot. There's a lot of freshwater anglers who do get interested in uh, sea fishing and I find that with most mullet anglers they have a freshwater background somewhere there and they're the thoughtful ones, the ones that are fishing because they like the challenge of it. It's recognition as well. The National Mullet Club have a system whereby you can get certificates and you can gain trophies at the end of the year and it's published so that people who like that competitive edge I think one of the best competitions is the heaviest weight of the 10 best fish during the year caught from different locations and there's keen competition for that trophy trying to get 10 fish all over five pounds during the season and uh, some people if you if, if you get 10 fish over seven pounds uh, 70 pounds of mullet over 10 fish that's some doing So it's mainly the excitement of the challenge and learning new things, I think, which is likely to attract a particular kind of angler, somebody who's more of a sports angler than somebody that just fishes for some fish for the pot. Yeah, that pretty much sums up the outside of you. I also have a mullet fishing. Hard fighting, often elusive fish approach with light tackle and invariably return to the water once it's seen the inside of the landing net. And although some commercial fishing for them does take place, not exactly a popular or regular resident on the fishmonger's slab. A prospect which hopefully will ensure the longer term viability and increase the popularity as other species slip deeper into decline. My thanks then to Leon Roskilly for sharing his enthusiasm for mullet with us here. <laughs>